Okay, and welcome to this episode of Building New Realities. So this is a podcast we put on at Future Visual, and I'm delighted to welcome my very good friend, Rachel Blackman, to come and speak to us today, or speak with me today. Um, Rachel is a dear friend who I sort of regard as a bit of a, a bit of a polymath in that she's highly skilled in lots and lots of areas, and most of them are sort of around intuitive wisdom. So I'll just give a bit of a, an outline to some of the things Rachel's done. She is an, an actress, a director, a somantic educator. Um, she is a deeply sort of intuitive body worker as well. But we'll get into that. She has a company called Vibrant Body Worker. And uh, currently, I believe Rachel doing training for Feldenkrais. I've probably pronounced that completely wrong. Uh, Feld, I'm going to call it Feldenkrais, International Teacher Training. Um, so, yeah, a range from actress, director to body worker. Thanks, Rachel, for joining me today. You're welcome, Tim. Lovely to join you. Lovely to, lovely to be invited. Excellent. So the, the, the sort of purpose and premise of our podcast is called Building New Realities. Yeah. So I think we're on about podcast number six now. And obviously, you know, I work in VR and immersive technology. And our premise in working in that field has been sort of providing access to situations and scenarios that are difficult or too expensive to create in real life. And you know that's on the back of some of the work I did in, in entertainment, which was about providing big, immersive, kind of special moments for connecting with people and really transporting people for in a sort of defined period, you know, a sort of yes. two-hour show. That was what really yes. interested me was how um, the visual image and the environment you create could kind of transform people's experiences. So they're moving into VR. There's been elements of that. We sort of applied it in quite a corporate um, way to begin with, obviously, as we were sort of trying to find our, our footing with clients, and that was providing training for high-risk, high-value areas. But again and again, you know, the theme that comes up is embodiment. So the reason I wanted to talk to you today, or one of the, the reasons is, I know you're very skilled or very interested, a student of embodiment, I should perhaps say, because anyone who's deeply skilled at anything remains a student of it for most of their life. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, just sort of talking to you a bit about embodiment and perhaps your journey from actress, director. Actually, when I say actress, I've got to mention that you were, of course, in The Matrix. I was. You're right. Not only that, home and away. <laughs> <laughs> so true they're the only two things i can tell my grandmother i've done in the th in the in the in, in the acting industry and she knows what i'm talking about it's funny my granddaughter yes so what was your journey into acting then rage oh into embodiment or acting well I'm, I'm making an assumption there that acting was your your was your first stop before you got into embodiment well it's interesting because i i had a um a, i have a background before i became an actor I did an awful lot of very very physical stuff so I was I'd done 14 years of classical ballet loads of gymnastics was very physical I guess as a lot of Australian people are <laughs> um, outdoors a lot and falling down and getting up again you know and um, very physically expressive and it wasn't really until I came and trained as as an actor I did three years of acting training at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts and the foundation of our actor training 
the movement part of our active training was the Feldenkrais method, which up until that point I hadn't heard of before. And when I first turned up at act to train as an actor, I walked like a duck because I, my main movement practice had been classical ballet. So my feet were turned out and my back was like a rod and I had, you, you know, you can imagine. Well, a couple forwards then, your feet sort of made these small actions going forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was neutral. I thought that was normal. And then my movement teacher kind of told me I'd walk like a duck and yeah. help me discover some alternative ways of sitting, walking and standing. And that was my first entry, really. That, as well as Alexander Technique, were my first gateways into understanding that I could make choices about how I am in my body. So when, so when we're an actor, we need to know about how to change how we are in order to inhabit different states of being, right? That's a kind of really core part of being an actor. And so it's very, very hard for you to inhabit a whole bunch of different physical possibilities if you're stuck inside a rigid sense of yourself. And I guess that for me, what embodiment means is how we're doing what we do. So if you've got some range and choice in how you're doing what you do every day, then I'd say that's, uh, that that's touching on what embodiment means to me. How am I doing what I'm doing? Um, and can I bring choice to how I'm doing what I'm doing? Um, so it, it means that we can kind of develop qualities and develop ways of being really um, with consciousness. And that was a real light bulb moment for me and really influenced the kind of actor I became because I'm a very physical performer. And that really informs a lot of my thinking about performance generally. And uh, yeah, and it led me into a whole bunch of other investigations about uh, possible applications for uh, actor training tools, ways in which these uh, techniques and tools could be applied in other aspects of life. That's interesting hearing you talk about the first stages of actor training. It's something I used to think about actually, but I haven't thought about for a while. Like how much of it is kind of cerebral versus how much of it is felt. And I'm thinking about it from the like the novice kind of experience, like when you first turn up at your, you know, your acting course. You know, that would have been perhaps something as a, as a, as a young person. I would have been thought, oh, that'd be really interesting to do. And then would be like, no, no, you've got to do something sensible. That worked out well. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so when you're doing that early bit of training. Um, just out of curiosity, really, do they, do they go, okay, today we're going to imagine what it's like to um, play someone whose child had an accident, you're going to play um, a fireman, or you're going to, you know, coming up with pretty stereotypical um, uh, roles here. I guess what I'm getting to is how much of it from an early start did they talk about embodying it and feeling it as opposed to thinking about the physicality of it and how that person um, might present as they're trying to sort of inhabit different, different roles. I know, what you, I know where you're going. So there's different philosophies around that. Some schools of thought and some um, styles of training like to approach that 
question from the outside in. So how you dress uh, the, the physical environment, what you, uh, th that you could make a shape and that influences how you're feeling on the inside. And other schools of thought suggest that you start from the inside out. So you begin with a feeling and then you find the form and then you find the clothing. Yeah. So, so for example, you might've heard of the method. Have you heard of the method? Yeah, yeah, I've heard, yeah, I've heard of that sort of, that's quite a famed um, school. It's isn't quite it? famous. The, yeah, the lot of Hollywood, Hollywood, um, yeah. golden it, era Hollywood. Yeah, so living the role really. Got you, yeah. So we're starting with an emotional imprint in that, in that form of training. You're first of all invited to visit a, an emotionally impactful moment that is connected to a set of circumstances. And then you're kind of building the physicality around that. Uh, and then, um, and then perhaps less famously, there's other schools of thought that suggest that you can work from the outside in. So you can find, first of all, a shape or find a, a kind of object or a piece of clothing even or a, or a kind of tonal environment and then build it that way. Is that a bit like, is that a bit like, um, you know, if you're trying to inhabit a role, is that a bit like a sort of, not manifestation, but, um, um, you know, embodying the voice of, you know, if you're going to be, uh, let's say your, uh, let's say your role is a bossy firefighter. I don't know why I keep yeah. to that. So yeah. That shows the yeah, yeah, yeah. depth of my imagination. But yeah. you would walk around the house going, get out the way, get out the way, get down those stairs. <laughs> does it, does it in, actually... in, a, in a way, yeah. So, so. Um, do some stuff that's that it, it, if you like. So being bossy is a way into being that firefighter more authentically, right. and you're not naturally a very bossy person. Then doing a lot of bossing around might help you access the part of you that needs to be really bossy and bring it authentically to a role. Right. Um, another example from the Matrix, from the uh, from the outside in, is I trained for six months to get my body into a certain shape, and to and I was playing a soldier. And, um, and so I was training physically right on the edge of my own capacity uh, every day of the week, except one for two hours a day, often to the point of feeling a bit weepy and exhausted and frustrated, you know? Method, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But what it built, well, I sort of felt like I knew what a soldier might feel like in my imagination. It sort of helped prepare me on the inside mm. it, and it, and it, supported my creation of the character mm. because of the work I was doing externally. So interesting. So a lot of, yeah. or some of what's happening in, uh, in VR and immersive technology is yes. this, um, this sort of empathy piece. Yeah. And, and it had a big, it was, you know, kind of like all things in VR, big sort of hype when VR got popular in sort of 2016, you know, people throwing around phrases like the empathy machine. Which yeah, a bit grand, um, but they were uh, you know allowing people to be in other people's shoes, but with less effort, <laughs> perhaps representative of our societies. So you know there were there were lots of pieces by the UN and kind of refugee organisations to put people in in refugee camps and, and stuff like that. I've, you know, if that had a positive effect, that's grab. In some ways, it felt like a little bit, um, you know, gratuitous. Like, you know, here's this very high tech bit of yeah. kit. Let's just throw you into uh, a real kind of painful, nasty environment. 
kind of shock like a kind of virtue signaling thing possibly um, um i mean I, I guess i guess at the time people were were really hyping it as as a genuine empathy machine and it was a bit more right. to me it felt a bit like refugee porn in a way like look look what we can do we can put you there and take you out yeah. so I, and i think that's just people were overplaying the empathy heart card i think it was a bit cerebral along the lines of like oh look how clever we are yeah but, um but i but this ability to walk in other people's shoes or experience other scenarios very quickly and very powerfully is valid right so if you were training for a um astronaut role and you wanted to do experience a space station that's obviously going to be difficult for people to train in but by using vr that is something you could get a feel for so yeah. that's where this sort of crossover between embodiment and embodiment in environments that you won't normally have access to got you kind of plays with the embodiment where you're having to use a real cerebral effort so yeah. cerebrally yeah. we could sit in a room and go okay well let's think what firemen have to go through and let's recreate those scenes but um vr as with many scenarios can kind of when used correctly and not assumed to be the whole thing, because that's quite often that's the problem with new technologies, isn't it? It's like, hey, look, here's this thing that's, that, that's the new thing now. We just do it like that. But when, yeah. when seen skillfully, um, I think could, as, it, as in lots of areas, can have this sort of turbocharging effect. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the most similar from the limited, really limited experience I've had of having my head in a VR set. Um, the closest parallel I could think of was a kind of green screen, like, you know, when an actor, when you're working on a green screen mm. um, and you're having to imagine a whole bunch of stuff that really is just, you know, not there. No, a few balloons. That's why you get like those wooden performances in. Yeah. Whatever empire number it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few few blokes standing with some equipment in front of a green screen and yeah. you've got to imagine it's the Lord Have of you green. seen how that's all changing now? No, no. How's so it now, changing now? So now rather than doing like mass, because during that era, era of sort of Star Wars, like 12, 15 years ago, and it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Hey, everything's green and we're going to paint it all in later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've got like really high res LED screens. Yeah, just putting them in as curtains. Oh yeah, on the back of the plot, and using an aspect of VR technology, putting uh, trackers on the oh, yes. on the cameras as the camera moves around. The perspective on the on the back plate or the back curtain yeah. moves accordingly. So yeah. if you want to create some big interior interior or exterior shot, you can. They, they used it a lot in the the, the Mandalorian. Oh, I see. Okay, right. So We're watching that at the moment. <laughs> oh, right. So all of that, yeah. a bunch of that is done with this kind of virtual curtain. So it kind of, so it, it works in a number of ways. It feels a bit more authentic for yep. the actors because it's like yep. they've done all the keying and the post-production process. Yep. But they can still use the kind of tracking technology and the flexibility of it all um, just to shoot it real time. Yeah, right. Just a little side note for you there, if you need to be really interesting. on your cinema post-production techniques. Getting me up to speed <laughs> from, the, um, from the early noughties. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, when you're talking about, um, like, the method and stuff and, and, and inhabiting these, 
these roles or thinking about them. There's quite a thin veil, isn't there, between training for a actor, entertainment, theatrical piece, using mm. those techniques, mm. and just wanting to use those techniques in the wider world. Right, it's all part of the same. So shifting back into like what embodiment actually means. Yeah. You want to go and do like a, you know, you've got to go and do a, a best, um, you know, speech, like a best man speech or some kind of speech. At, you know, you kind of like pep yourself up a little bit, don't you? I mean, yeah. I remember when I did a best man speech, I was like, don't get drunk, don't get drunk, don't get drunk. <laughs> and then I was about to do it. I was like, I'm not drunk enough. <laughs> and I had quickly had to have like three shots. And I was like, okay, now I feel good because it's all about inhabiting that that kind of that role. So you're you're doing it for a practical application um, with your your theatre work, um, but we do it all the time, don't we? Surely that's the. That's well, the I think we are doing it all the time, and um, we're not always conscious of doing it. So we're doing it all the time, and we assume we don't. We just don't realise it's a role, or we don't realise it's a script. Right. But we're, we're improvising and adapting and riffing and creating scenarios all the time. We're just not calling them scenarios. So in the role of wife, I'm having a conversation with my husband about yeah, whatever, you know. And so we're, we're kind of agreeing to these setups all the time. So I guess one of the, thing that, the things that embodiment allows us to do is begin to inquire into how we're doing that or noticing when we're stuck in a role or noticing um, what quality we're bringing to a role. Um, yeah, how we're doing what we're doing. And how does, the, how, and how, and does that feed into the Feldenkrais work you do? Feldenkrais? Oh, yeah, so the Feldenkrais method, which you totally nailed and you said it just spot on. Yeah, is um, it's a... The, the strange word Feldenkrais comes from a guy's name. His name was Moshe Feldenkrais and he was an Israeli um, physicist actually and um, judo black belt who created a movement system that's about neuromuscular repatterning or now it's called neuroplasticity. So it's about how we can relearn how we do what we do in order to um, have greater freedom in how we are in sitting, standing, walking, however we do what we do in the day. So if you've got like a habitual pattern of tension that's not serving you in how you play tennis, for example, um, you can unlearn the way you're doing it in order to learn a new way of doing it that gives you greater ease and less discomfort. Does that make sense? Yeah, and is it, and is it always in the physical realm or does it go into the mental realm as well? Well, what's- well, Is there an offshoot of the Feldenkrais? Yeah, there is no such. I would I would say that the, that that we are whole and we're changing, right? As 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 orga organic beings, and so I think uh, my experience is that they're inseparable those realms. So, with th there's a reason why you chose to do. Uh, let's let's think about something more primal, like the or something more simple, like the height you choose to bit to stand at, right? Like mm. I choose to occupy this height. Um, you don't realize it's a choice at, at a certain point. Like if you were say someone who grew up really fast, really young at the, at a, like suddenly my stepson's the same height as me and just six months ago, he was really short. So all of a sudden he's tall. And that 
that might not say he meets with a, a, some, a shaming experience or he, he meets with, he, he develops for whatever reason an idea that it's not very good to be tall, that it's, it's safer being short. So he will develop a strategy that might manifest as a physical strategy that helps him stay short. Um, I saw what, stooping. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, or for women maybe protecting breasts or- I'm not wearing shoes. Yeah, 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 exactly. We've all got little choices. We don't realise the choices, but they're sort of a, an aspect of keeping us um, safe and comfortable, right? Because mm. we all want to be safe and comfortable. So what the method will teach us will be how to, how to stand at our full height, for example. And, and of course, when you do that, you meet the strategy that you chose to keep you small. And that is emotionally and spiritually challenging, right? And mentally challenging too. So I, I don't know if that helps. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying, you're saying that lots of mental um, habits are held up in physical, physical posturing. Yeah, mental, emotional, spiritual, I'd say. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. What's been your sort of most, um, in, your, in your embodiment journey, and, uh, and this includes like your, your body work you, you do, yeah. which you're amazing at, by the way. Oh, thanks, Tim. <laughs> it's amazing at body work. So if anyone needs <laughs> to talk to a ninja about it, talk to Rachel afterwards. Thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, so what, what would have been your other interesting areas of embodiment? Sort of, you know, Feldenkrais, I can't pronounce it right now. <laughs> you're, do, you're doing great, Feldenkrais. Feldenkrais. So Feldenkrais is obviously at a school. Can I what? share an anecdote for a moment? Um, yeah. My husband said, like, I was, it's a four-year tra training, the Feldenkrais teacher training, and I was two years into it, and my husband said, so what's it got to do with Jesus? Oh, my God. <laughs> Because he thought I was saying Feldenkrais. <laughs> <laughs> he saw me rolling around on the floor doing slow movement and couldn't understand the Speaking language. Speaking in tongues. <laughs> yeah. So are there any other sort of theories from embodiment world that really stand out to you as, uh, as schools? We, I do a little thing where I try and get, get some theories or some book recommendations. Obviously, we'll go on to books, but let's do yeah. moment. What else has come up in your journey? I can send you, I can send you a list of like ways into reading you know um but the school of thought is called semantics oh, yeah. so that's different to semantics semantics is meaning in language um and semantics is the felt sense of the body so soma mm. meaning the um experience of being in a body and semantics being the science or the exploration of that mm. and it's a very very broad field so um the, so the, the fields that look at neuroplastic change like Alexander Technique and Feldenkrais method and um, uh, Hannah Somatics are ways, they're, they're, that's one kind of branch, I guess, of the field. Um, martial arts is another massive branch. Um, performing arts, I'd say, would be another massive branch. Um, uh, I'd say elite athlete, athletics. Um, more and more is is um, entering that realm. So it's about looking at how you could kind of maximise human potential inside the way someone's doing what they're doing, like running five, running a hundred metres. That you can't really not ha you can't avoid the conversation of how they're doing what they're doing. 
and refining it and refining it. Um, so, so somatic is, is, is it, it's related to the body. Is it related to the sort of the, the structural chain of the body? Or does it include things like breathing? Because if we're going to start pulling it all apart, breathing becomes yeah, so like a massive thing. Well, breathing happens anyway. Mm. And um, let's say, let's, one argument would be that it becomes embodied if we give it our attention. Yep. Uh, so it's happening anyway, and we give it an intention uh, and our attention, and then suddenly it becomes a. a, a participatory act um, so one argument would be it's the difference between giving something our attention and it happening anyway happening automatically automation another argument would be the different what it like the opposite of objectification culture Ooh. so objectification culture I, I, I know I should know what that means I'll tell you what I think it means. So you're standing outside of yourself, judging yourself about how you look. That's objectification culture. And you're saying semantic, semantic, semantic practice is the opposite of objectification culture. Yeah, so somatic practice is interested in the felt sense of being in a body and the, the, and what, what, how, how to make that an enjoyable experience or an alive to bring aliveness to that experience. Um, so rather than standing outside ourselves and judging ourselves about our form, like I'll I, I tell you an objectifying comment, I really need to look to lose weight so I look like this picture in a magazine. <laughs> That's an objectifying comment. I understand comment. that one. Yeah, right, women do. <laughs> um, huh. Or I, I really need to, um, look a certain shape or I need to have a better tan or why don't I look more like that person or why don't I have more of what that person It feels is. like, in the, in the way that I know you, it feels like a lot of what you do is at the opposite of objectification culture. I think so. I think it's really core to what I do. Yeah. yeah. Because you're more than happy to stand on stage on your own. I've always been struck by how you're happy to reveal sort of in, I'm going to say insecure um, characters, you know, insecure, terrified, not terrified, that's not right. You just be, you be, you be so happy to let the ins, let the inside come out. Like when I did, you saw you do some, you know, your first stand up shows on your own. Mm -hmm. you're, all, you're all about like letting those nervous, unseen bits come out. Yeah, right. That's a big part of what I'm, what I'm really, I'm really really attracted to performers that allow us allow life to be alive inside them so we're not watching someone do a good technique yeah we're uh, we're watching them um or we're being with them whilst life is happening in them cool so and i guess you know like in terms of vr that's what you're going for, right? You're give, going for creating well, it's quite, a It's very interesting because, I, you know, it, VR is, is, is a completely immature, um, I was gonna say immature art form. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very early stage with technology and, it's, and it's, it's, it's not on the road even to becoming an understood art form yet. Right. 
the experiences is also kind of new and evolving. Yeah. But there is this, there is this capacity for it to, to, to evolve into a tool that will work with our kind of uh, uh, awareness and will work with our cerebral ability to um, create, a, create a, an, an intensity of experience. So one of the partnerships we've just done is with HP and they, um, Hewitt Packard, and they've got, a, they've got a device that basically has got a bunch of sensors on it and it feeds back your environment according to the bio physical stimulus that you emit. So, you know, you, in some ways you could control that environment. Mm. You could either be subject to the environment and just let your signals be read. So mm. it's like, well, when you put the, when we put in this environment, your, your, um, your body temperature went up, your heart rate started increasing, blah, 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 blah. And just give you a report, but then you can also feed it back into the environment. So, could you give me an example, as a stupid person who isn't a VR person, could you give me an example of how that works? Well, I, I, on a sort of mundane level, it works. Is it a haptic signal? Um, well, it's, a, it's like an electric... Like an electromagnetic. Yeah, yeah. Electromagnetic sensors um, in the headset. Oh, wow. And there's so many kind of like signals going on from your from your skin, as, as you know. There's so much kind of... Uh, electric pulsing going on that it gives a gives a picture of how you're feeling wow that's fascinating yeah so at a mundane level uh if you're training someone to be a uh, firefighter yeah. <laughs> you could um you could see how someone reacts when you put them in a room and um you know the microwave explodes yeah, you know, yeah. how do they do they do they do their signals go off the off the charts do you basically use it as a point of observation for them so that you can tell them okay well when you did this this and this action this is what your biosignals did so you can use it either in a in a kind of like pre-selection way like mm. let's see who has a net natural capability for dealing mm -hmm. with highly stressed environments yeah or they've really had much training at all yeah um or when people are kind of qualified yeah you, you can use it as a as an ongoing uh, yeah, so that's like in a mundane way because mm. you're mm. applying it to high stress scenarios mm. but then there's other scenarios where you can use it to kind of sculpt what you're seeing a little mm. bit you know in the way that um people are, uh, are sort of measuring their, their their various signals with things like meditation like the headband called muse yes yeah. that. so this is a bit of a step further but then, mm. but like i say it's a real it's a real infancy um exciting though exciting because you get to be at the vanguard right like yeah. you get to make some choices about what you want it to be yeah yeah mm. that that's kind of, that, that's kind of overwhelming in a way because there's so many choices right you know, right you've got to kind of like i think in terms of the the biofeedback piece it will be in high risk high value training got you yeah, that's that's where it will get traction yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it won't go down to this kind of. It won't go into a sort of arts creative road for mm. for some time. No, I can imagine. But there's a really interesting correlation there 
just from listening to you. Well, actually, just as a, just sorry to interrupt, Rach, just as a, as a middle ground, there's like the high risk, high value training. And actually, there's a, a company I know who allow people to, people kind of quite often have difficulty expressing where they have pain. Mm. So there's this um, one application where people can essentially draw on themselves and change the color. So they go, oh, and change the kind of texture of the of the image. So it could be spiky, it could be dots, it could be flat. And they can kind of paint a map of themselves to show how they're feeling. So I think this, that's quite an interesting. Really interesting. And, and is there a therapeutic application in the sense that they can change, say something spiky and red, they can make it smooth and blue? They probably can do that. But I think this is in actually how they're trying to change, how they're trying to articulate Mm. how their pain feels so this is initially just them drawing a map mm, okay so they can describe something in in a more in that feels more like a felt sense yeah just think this is easier isn't it if you've got a visual map if someone goes oh yeah i've got this pain going through my shoulder and it's my elbow it's like yeah. well, it might all kind of be orange spikes up there yeah and it goes down into you know a different it just like i think it allows them to get a slightly different texture yeah to, yeah. to, to how they're trying to describe pain. Yeah, because language can be quite ham-fisted, can't it, when mm. it comes to articulating a felt sense. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, really, it's a really interesting area. So when we were talking about somatic and we started to touch on breath, I'm quite mm. interested in the different schools of, of breathing. So mm. I, tried, I did some of the Wim Hof stuff recently. Oh yeah, how'd you go on with that? It's pretty good. <laughs> pretty cool isn't it it's so cool it's so cool yeah man it's really I, interesting i really liked it mm. i haven't done the full ice bath but i but the the i've done some breathing it's good. it works isn't it? cold shower I, do, I try and do four minutes of cold shower all year it's round. four minutes yeah how often do you do that well, I try and do it every day. I do it when I don't have a cold. I don't have a shower every day. Sometimes I have a bath. But if I have a shower, I always do it. Right. And, and I just regulate my breathing um, and, and really feel the ground under my feet and just be, yeah, be a well-regulated organism. <laughs> I manage to do one, I do one. I do one minute every day. I haven't really progressed past that. I've been doing one minute for about six months. One minute's great. One minute's fine. Yeah, well, one minute's great. Minute I spent years that. building up. <laughs> I did you. But it's good, that Wim Hof stuff. I just did a, a couple of the exercises and um, I felt great afterwards. I felt mm, kind of yeah. calmer, more grounded. Yeah. You know. More capable. Yeah. Yeah. So I think breathing as an aspect, you know, we, you know, we all talk about the breath, don't we? We all talk about, mm. oh, just be gentle with your breathing and stuff but it seems like there's so much more we can do i just think breathing is the quickest way to help someone feel what i mean what if someone says i don't know what you mean about embody by embodiment mm. i can say feel the place where your feet touch the floor mm. and notice that you're breathing i'd say where how how do you know you're breathing mm. <laughs> where's the evidence that you're breathing how do i know how do you know that you're breathing and immediately that question turns you inward to notice what is happening when you're breathing. What, how are you doing your breathing? Oh, I noticed that there's a bit of movement in my sternum, a little bit of movement in my belly. Yeah. 
whatever it is for you. And it's impossible to be in that inquiry and not be not be in an experience of embodiment. So that, but that is a, a fascinating way to build a new reality, right? Because we come at it from this slightly like technology heavy, yeah, and angle. Yeah, but that's why I was keen to talk to you because all these mm. things that we have at our disposal mm. um, are actually really powerful. We just we're really underused. In a typically human way, we've gone, no, 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 let's build this thing that completely alters our reality and requires billions of dollars of investment. It doesn't quite work, but it will do one day. Or, <laughs> or you could just use the thing that you've already got. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if there's a way of um, entraining the person who's first entering that VR environment with these kinds of tools, you know, so that they can stay with themselves as they're going into the what it helps with because obviously all, all all humans are cursed with the act of thinking <laughs> and um what vr can help with is taking away the thinking element yeah yeah because you're you're taking care of the immediate environment mm. and it's mm. this focus element to vr that plays to its strengths. And that's whether you're doing corporate training, mm. artistic creative endeavor, mm. meditative um, type exercises. Mm. It definitely, the few experiences I've had, it definitely feels like a more creative, it feels like there's an element of game, even if it's not a game. Mm. There's, a, there's an invitation that feels more game-like mm. um, than like, for example, Zoom or, mm. um, I've never done a professional meeting via VR. I'd be curious to see how that went. Um, it's good fun, actually. Everyone's a lot more playful. I bet. It does that, see, that doesn't surprise me at all. It engages something else. Yeah. There's a three-dimensionality, obviously. But also there's an exploratory aspect that's multidimensional, which doesn't and, happen here in Zoom. And it also, and compared to reality, actually, it... it it gets rid of a lot of the formality. Right. It gets rid of a lot of the, you know how you were saying at the, at the, at the top of our talk, like, well, we're all occupying these kind of bodies and personas all day, whether yeah. it's talking to your spouse, your child, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. your client, kind of gets rid of a lot of that. Yeah, right, so you're in invention, so you're active, actively. And I think that's one of its greatest strengths, actually, is it's like, let's cut away the pretense of the character mm. that has that we have either chosen or been appointed to play got you, got you. that's very powerful so we're, we're able to step out of the limits of our own persona for a moment yeah and, and i'm gonna write that down yeah be a kind of pure a pure pure self again or, or... you're just a kind of allowed to play yeah and it brings back. We're not uh, limited by the same social agreements or cultural. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, I am not a skin color. I am not a. I'm not a religion. I'm not a. Yeah. I'm not a boss. I'm not a client. No. No. I'm not trying to appear knowledgeable. I'm not trying to do no. whatever kind of deal here. I'm not faking paying attention because I've got to get on to the next meeting. No. I'm consciousness at a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or wherever, on a roller coaster, wherever I am. Yeah.
So that I think is its one of its real powerful attributes at the moment is just letting people get into play. I mean, then you get into the other thing of like allowing people to join up in spaces where it's kind of fun to meet, you know, now that we're not meeting in physical office offices um, so much anymore. Mm. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a real strong positive in its favor. And I also wonder if there's not, um, I haven't experienced a meeting context, like I said, but invention present just innately by the form. If, if there isn't also a capacity for more sense, sensory, a kind of, cause it's engaging a motor, motor sensory cortex. It's in, engaging our motor sensory cortex, isn't it? I don't know. I've, I've never heard of that. Well, I won't pretend to, otherwise I'll end up in all kinds of... Okay, so this is interesting. This Say it again, what's it called? Engaging the what? So we, we've got a motor cortex and a sensory, a sensory motor cortex. Sensory motor cortex. And, and that's um, the parts of us that govern movement. Yep. In the, in the brain. And in Feldenkrais, uh, we teach that if you can't physically achieve a movement yep. but you can imagine the movement you can imagine doing the movement if you can't imagine doing the movement then you definitely won't be able to achieve the movement but if you can imagine doing the movement then part of your motor cortex can work out the physical trajectory of it so neuroplastic change is possible simply by lying on your back and imagining you're doing you could do a whole feldenkrais lesson and wake up and you will feel different simply by doing it all in your imagination mm. how crazy is that but it's true mm. and that's because when we're preparing for a movement that the, all of the in on a micro level all of the synaptic connections are happening that would be happening if we were actually moving so this is getting us back into one of my favorite areas in terms of building yeah. new realities, which is the, um, I was going to use the manifestation word, but what, the, what's wrong with that? Too hippy dippy. Well, it has a slightly loaded, loaded word, slightly mm. loaded word, I think. But when you, when you talk about it in the, in the way that you just have done there and, and keep it with movement, you know, mm. it kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, but it's 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 really it's at the heart of all embodiment, isn't it? In, you know, manifestation. You're thinking about a set of things, uh, a set of outcomes mm. that you you want to happen. Mm. And this neuro neuroplasticity, or this perceiving of um, outcomes you would like to happen, mm. will have a impact mm. on the outcome that we experience in reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ties <laughs> in with VR, right? Like, yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. What I mean it's, with the movement piece, one of the things I proposed actually last week in the in the this VR project we're putting together is we're we're building kind of stadium environments for people to watch esports. Oh wow! It's kind of crazy enough in itself. Um, but but would be could be really cool yeah well we were thinking about you know how do we how how, how do we get people to move around and we're like let's give them jetpacks <laughs> yeah. so like 
Okay. Okay, so you've gone into this big stadium to watch eSports and you want to hook up with your friends. And uh, okay, so you can find your friends on the menu that you've got in your hand. So it's like create a bubble amongst your friends. Yeah. And then like you basically like hit assemble and all your mates like whoop, all teleport to the same space together. <laughs> and, uh, and then you're like, okay, well, how do we get around? It's like, well, let's buy a jetpack. They're only 99p. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. I so want to do that. Oh uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of where where we're at with with VR, the work we're doing at the moment. Part of the sort of visualising about what could it be and making things into reality because we're literally having conversations along the lines of, okay, well, what's what's really bad? What's frustrating about large gathering events? And part mm. of it is like losing your mates. Mm. There's always a hassle to get to your seat. You know, and what are, what are the fun things that we'd miss if we did it virtually? And it's um, it's like well, those little random adventures that just happen. You know, mm. but, mm. have you been to Shangri La and Glastonbury? Do you know, Tim? I feel terrible. You haven't been to Glastonbury. I've never been to Glastonbury. Right, it's over. What a what a fail! Fail. Spent well, <laughs> you'll enjoy it when you do go. And it's a bit like that, then, is it? No, there's an, there's an area called uh, Shangri-La. Hmm. And Shangri-La kind of is what happens when everything else closes. You'll oh. be more than familiar with the type of scenario I'm about to describe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it, it's really well done. And it's loads of artists. So you'll have, you know, you'll have like a, the fuselage from a plane. You'll have, you know, loads of kind of Joe Rush, hmm. um, Mutoid Waste kind of hmm. installations. Proper craziness. It's great. Mm. And it kind of gets crazy at about 3 a.m. Yeah, I bet. And it's normally the kind of crescendo after like 48 hours or 72 hours of being mm. in Glastonbury. Mm -hmm. And you have these crazy nights and you kind of get, you leave there about seven, between seven and nine in the morning if you're lucky. So four, <laughs> four or five the next afternoon if you've got a bit waylaid. And, um, and just kind of you know, loads of magical things happen. And obviously this year, Glastonbury was closed. Mm. Um, but some, some people are an arts group. They built a virtual version of Shangri-La. Wow. And they actually completely re recreated it very faithfully. Mm. So they rebuilt, rebuilt Shangri-La, had its couple of stages, had all the art stuff in there. And... Um, and you can access it either via laptop or via your VR headset. Mm. And they had the normal they had the normal roster of DJs playing. So you had you know Fatboy Slim playing. You had Jamie Jones. You had you know Seth Troxos, all the sort of DC Ten crew. And we're like, okay, well, no, we'll, we'll give it a go. And I bought another PC home, so we had two headsets in this room. And um, and we went in there. I went in with the guys from work on Friday evening, Friday afternoon. And pretty quickly, it was like, oh, we're in Shangri-La. Really? Yeah, it was like, wow. it, was, it was five in the afternoon. But it was then even better because you're like, okay, well, I'm just gonna change the way I look. I'm just gonna change my avatar. Mm. So I, I, I became a shark with like a big tongue hanging out my mouth. And, uh, and we just kind of, you know, hanged out with the guys in work and that was five o'clock, they, they went. And then, and then some other people came around the house 
And um, in fact, Fatboy Slim came round, Norman came yeah. round. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and we went in there together and we were just having random conversations with people from, you know, <laughs> from Miami, from Texas, from Columbia. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, is this what Glastonbury's really like? And we were like, yeah, it's just like this. <laughs> and um, we were in there for a couple of hours, you know, came out about half nine. I'm like, ah, mm -hmm. oh, time for bed. <laughs> and, uh, and then some other friends came around the next, uh, next evening. And, and it had a similar kind of experience. Everyone was yeah. like, wow, that was, it was different. You weren't like, oh, I've, I've had the, well, you did feel like you'd had a Shangri-La experience. That was the whole point. You didn't, yeah, feel yeah, like, yeah. you didn't feel like you were muddy and dirty and grimy like no. you did a four day raid, but you had gone in and very quickly had the cerebral experience of, mm. great, I'm a shark. Mm. And Mary is dressed up as she looks like something from a, all bassets, all sorts, sweetie mix, because she's got a big <laughs> smiley head. And we had a really funny hour and a half. And then we yeah. took Blaze in there. And um, my daughter. So I would say that's not just a cerebral experience, because in order to have the perception of moving, you have to engage your vestibular system and your motor cortex. So the vestibular system is the system of balance. When, it, when the vestibular system gets off, we get sick and we lose the ability to stand upright. So we need that. I think the idea that we are separate from our bodies is a delusion, actually, that in fact, like a, a, at one end of the spectrum, I might argue that there's no such thing, even a cognitive function is still embodied. No cognitive function exists free of the body. There's no such thing, right? So. So the, the split, the Cartesian split, I see is a total falsehood. I don't see it as a truth. It's a, such a strange, false, um, artificial, artificial is a better word, dichotomy. So you're, you're describing, the thing you're describing about Shangri-La, I find it so fascinating because how do you get a sense of momentum? You get a sense of momentum because you're making choices about where you're going to move, mm. right? What you're going to look at, which is totally your motor cortex. Being engaged. Well, perhaps that's where the the really strong first wins will happen, mm. where, where we're not going completely out there with the VR environment we're trying to build. It's like, no, no, we're just recreating something that we all have a common language and context with. Yeah. Actually, it's up up at the scale of peak experience because when you do those things in real life, you're like, oh, that was that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Kind of much easier to access now. You know, we can just go and jump in. And there's some really other really interesting observations like Miri and um, our friend Tracy were, were, were in there together. And they were in like some jungle room where the, you know, the jungle beats were, were, were flying and, you know, some MC was chatting them up. And, and Miri was howling with laughter because it was totally ageless as well. Yeah. Like normally if she'd gone into, you know, a kind of jungle underground club you know obviously she spent a lot of time in those but now she might be like oh look there's the there's the middle-aged mum but it was yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You? <laughs> and then blaze came in my 10 year old daughter and she you know she was sort of teleporting over the scaffold and i was like oh, i can hear people swearing get her out of here um but this ability to sort of access environments that we already have a, a common language for that are already peak experience so perhaps yeah. we're this kind of first crossover between uh, embodiment and VR will, will happen. And another thing that you've just touched on there that I think is very interesting, Tim, is um, uh, 
the idea that that it's healing for us to spend time with other people, right? Mm -hmm. And there's in this time of coronavirus where we've been with with this sort of two-dimensional limitations of how we can engage with each other. Yeah. The possibility, like what you've described there to me, is a really rich social experience. It's a really rich interactive social communal experience, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's that's such a gift. VR has that gift in a way that other um, technologies just don't. Well, that's right. Because when Miri tried our product, Vision XR, with someone from work, a guy called Ben, and Ben just passed her a couple of things. You know, she hadn't tried it for a while. She came out. She goes, "Wow, you know, that was amazing. It felt like I actually had contact with Ben." Yeah. Um, so this yeah. ability to have contact. Well, which area of the brain is it that fills in? So if we were in VR and we touched hands together, yep. our brain would, there's two ways of looking at it. Either our brain would fill in yep. or because our hands are represented as uh, visual avatars, yes, yes. There, there is an element of uh, electrical particles yep. that are involved in the creating of our hand icons. Yeah, yeah. So, so if, you know, if we, if we touched hands in real life, that's kind of high level. And then let's yeah. say our hands touch, are represented by graphical particles, neurons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What I'm getting to is in some way they do touch. They so, do, and well, that's the, our perception is that they touch. There's or, something or, the or do they actually touch, but at a much lower level? And that combined with a bit of filling in i.e. Yeah. the hands are represented as, as, uh, as hand icons and then they get rendered in the graphics machine and they go down the internet pipe and they catch up with Yeah, them. I see. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's a sort of a metaphysical conversation, isn't it? But the, but the um, biological reality is that the perception is that touching is happening. Yes. Like, because that's how I'm built. So there's something in me, like phantom limb, right? There's something in yeah. my biology that, that can still feel a leg that no longer exists um, because I have a map of myself that extends beyond, beyond the edge, beyond the limit of my physical body. Yeah. Um, and that's, so from a, as a somatic practitioner, I would say that's 100% truth even though um, the facts might be dubious in terms of whether or not I'm actually touching you. Mm. Um, it's, I, my experience of it is it's a somatic truth. Does that make sense? Ah, okay, so you, because the brain's filled in and gone, that's real, you're sticking that in like, well, it's real then, because that's what the brain believes. Yeah, because in, my, in terms of my felt sense, that's mm. true for me. Um, and it, it kind of... Um, then it doesn't matter inside that paradigm whether science says it's true or not. But, some, but science certainly would be able to point at something happening in my nervous system as a result of that action. So somatic, so, so somatic truth is an interesting area for me to talk about when I talk about embodiment in VR and actual felt realities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, a felt sense would be a, a legitimate thing to be studying in terms of your client's experience, right? Mm. Mm. Yes, because it, that's what they perceive. Yeah, right. Sweet. Interesting. Mm. Oh, Rach, have you got any, have you got any books you would recommend? What are your favourite books that come to mind? I know you're an avid reader. You've always got 
Well, well, do you know what I'm reading? It. I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo. That's nothing to do with somatics. Um, oh. But um, another book that I'm reading that is on the same subject of anti-racism, um, and it is on the subject of somatics, is My Grandmother's Hands by a guy, a trauma therapist called Resma Manikam. And um, he's looking at uh, racialized uh, trauma handed down through generations. So what? So there being a kind of trauma pattern in white bodied people as much as there's trauma patterns in black bodied people or brown bodied people or um people um of all different kinds of walks of life will have their own imprints and they and it goes back it's just very very interesting but but he's looking at how we heal how we heal heal racialized trauma at the level of the tissue and at the felt sense so heal it biologically Wow. Rather than getting into discussions about who's right and wrong and how to change our thinking. Yeah, 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 because that's not going to help. But, but, it, but is, it, is, it, is it kind of all ethnicities trauma or is it is the focus on racial trauma? Well, his, one of the things he's, he's pointing out is that there's no... Um, only a traumatised body can, can objectify another, another human. Yeah. I was, actually, as I said that, I was thinking... You know, as as white ethnicities having traumatized a bunch of other ethnicities, we ultimately are traumatized by that. You know, why are we right? How do you dehumanize another person. another human without yeah. dehumanizing part of yeah. You're right. So that's part of what he's looking at. Um, really interesting. Um, but let me have a think about other other ways into um, uh, other books. I might have to, I'm not great at thinking of lists of books off the top of my head unless I kind of sit down and, so what I'll do, Tim, is I'll send you a list of, um, you can add some um, links to the podcast if that, does that, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, cool, cool. And, uh, and is, is anything, how's the, how's, I know theatre world's been tough this summer. Well, yes, yeah, so everyone's having a very tough time in theatres and for, it looked like for a while theatres were going to close down. And then um, Boris announced a big care package for the arts and everyone breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> but I do think there's an opportunity in this time to reconfigure how we're thinking. It's so interesting to talk to you, actually, because I'm what I'm thinking is that there needs to be the emergence of a third form. So we've got live theatre and we've got televised live theatre that ends up in the cinema, which is effectively just a kind of well-shot, slightly edited version of a, of a live performance, right? Mm. But I'm curious about the third form being using these technologies oh. to engage a live experience. So live audiences turning up to a live performative experience that's yeah, created that's as a live, yeah, it's created as a live event and it's interactive, but, um, but, has more filmic principles in its interactivity. And I'm just starting to bump, that's just you starting to search. Punch, Punch Drunk have just done a deal with Niantic, who are one of the big AR companies. Wow, I'll check that out. Because whatever they do will be pretty interesting. So yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of... Really Say again? I said they're gonna do something really interesting with it because they're Punch Drunk, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there is movement in, in that space. You know, mm. as you see people like Cirque fold, you know, obviously they're just going to fold the main company, but the kind of creative 
for accountancy reasons, but the kind of creative passion and leadership is still there. Um, yeah. They're starting to create um, exploratory alliances where, yeah. with, with immersive tech companies. There's another one called the Museum of Other Realities that we were be checking out. I'll write that down. Um, I was inspired by the, have you seen Nick Cave Alone? I think it's called an idiot. I haven't seen it, but I've read, yeah, that he's, what he's yeah. doing. And there's something about what he's trying to do there that I think is really lovely. Um, and he's just, it's just him alone in a massive space, but, but it's using um, filmic tools to create a cinematic experience of, of what's essentially uh, a live theatrical performance. Mm. But it's not just, it's not made for theatre captured on film. It's made for film with theatrical, do you know what I mean? Mm. So I think there's all sorts of ways in which it's, this um, challenge is going to open up our creative thinking and open up portals. And these technologies like Zoom that, that feel quite ham-fisted, I think in five years' time we're going to look back and we're going to think, wow, remember those days? <laughs> overload. Yeah. Well, just that, it, just that there's so many more places the technology can go, I'm sure, and I'm not the person to invent them, but... That's right. Be All right, Rachel. Thank you very, very much for joining us on this Thank podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have a chat with you. Really good. Always good to have a chat with you, Tim.